I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And you'll need a Bible to follow along. So these brothers are coming to the front. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, get their attention. And they'll get one of those to you that's marked for you at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Our culture promotes individualism. We say things like, be your own person, stand on your own two feet. We'll declare about ourselves, I'm a self-made man or woman. Make your own way, do your own thing. And then there's the political and economic variety of that individualism that goes back to Herbert Hoover, who believed that the primary answer to the Great Depression of the 1930s was what he called rugged individualism. That's a phrase that Rush Limbaugh uses regularly. But God calls believers to serve, pursuing ministry to others in the context not of rugged individualism, but in community. It requires involvement in the lives of others. From a scriptural standpoint, the answer to the question, am I my brother's keeper, is a resounding yes. The Bible teaches that it takes a community. It takes a church to grow a Christian. Now recall from our first message in this series a few weeks ago that the Apostle Paul and his associates were men on a mission. They traveled extensively throughout the Roman Empire, planting churches and enduring hardships of all sorts. One of the churches that they founded was in the city of Thessalonica, to whom the book of 1 Thessalonians was written. But theirs was no hit-and-run kind of ministry. They would stay for months and sometimes years, working and living among the people of the church as they sought to establish them in their newfound faith. And when they did leave to plant churches in other cities, they would still check on the progress of those that had previously been started. An intense desire for believers to share their lives with one another another is characteristic of the New Testament church. And such was the case with Paul in particular, but also his other associates and the Thessalonian church. Their mutual affection was such that when they were forced to be apart, Absence, indeed, made the heart grow fonder. But despite Paul's extreme efforts to promote the gospel in the lives of those whom he served, believe it or not, he was accused of having impure, sinful motives. Motives of ambition and avarice, that is, power and money. His defense against those charges was to remind the Thessalonians of what he did while he was with them. Earlier in chapter 2, as we saw two weeks ago, he said things like this, verse 3 of chapter 2. He said, the appeal we make does not spring from impure motives. And then in verse 7, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. 
Despite his great love for this congregation, Paul was still forced to leave the church at Thessalonica, as we see from Acts chapter 17 that tells us about the ministry that Paul and Timothy and Silas had there. The Bible says this, the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is no, uh, there is another king, one called Jesus. And then they made Jason and the others post bond and they let them go. And as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So Paul had to leave. As we're going to see in our passage in 1 Thessalonians, he didn't want to, but he was forced to. And in Paul's absence, some were now apparently seeking to take advantage of the situation and undermining Paul's ministry and reputation by saying that he left and he's not returned because he really doesn't care about the Thessalonians. So can't you hear them and what they might be saying? You know, when the going got tough, the apostle got going. He left town. Here we are suffering and he's no doubt off somewhere hustling some other dupes. Or there may have even been a spiritual spin on the accusations. After all, didn't Jesus say, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. He runs away because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Now, how can all of that be happening in a church that was labeled back in chapter one, a model church? Well, friends, it shows us that even healthy churches have problems. And in the title of this series, what God looks for in a church is not perfection, not an absence of problems, but a willingness to deal with them. We're going to see how Paul addresses this issue in today's passage, which in turn is going to provide for us principles of ministry for one another at Community Bible Church. Let's pray and ask God to help us then. Father, here we are with our Bibles open to hear from you within it. We thank you for giving us this recording of the ministry of the great apostle and his associates and brothers and sisters and brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. Father, we want to learn. We want to learn from their experience. We want to glean principles of relationship with one another, ministry to one another so that we can be effective for you. We ask you then to help us to that end. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And we have inserted for you in your program, this week as every week, an outline for the message. So if you don't have that out as yet, please take that out so that you can follow along. I say, first of all, that Christians demonstrate love for one another. And I say there that Christians' love for one another means that we experience sorrow in separation. We demonstrate love for one another in a number of ways, one of which is experiencing sorrow in separation. Verse 17 of chapter 2. Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you 
for a short time in person, not in thought. Now, that word orphaned is elsewhere translated torn away when we were torn away by being separated from you. But since it's in what the Greek language calls the passive voice, that is, it's not something that Paul chose, then the NIV translates it orphan. That is, Paul did not leave of his own accord, but he was forced to leave by the circumstances as we've seen. What a traumatic thing that was is what Paul is communicating. We were torn away. The NIV says orphaned. Some of you may recall the baby Jessica case years ago in the early 90s in which an Ann Arbor couple was forced to give up the baby that they had adopted nearly three years earlier because the biological father had not been informed that she was his baby and so he had not signed off on the adoption. And after the decision to award baby Jessica to her biological father and mother who had since married at that point. After that decision, TV cameras caught the anguish of the adoptive mother's baby Jessica was literally torn away from her arms. That's the kind of scene Paul is saying. That's the way he felt. That's the kind of trauma that he felt. Our own family, up until they were about three years old, you would have thought that Lainey and Annie were going to die when mom stepped out of the room let alone actually went somewhere. And Paul says here in verse 17, this was in person, not in thought. That is, they were separated physically, but not in spirit. For Paul, it was not the case that it was out of sight and out of mind. Now, why does Paul bother to even answer these spurious charges? He's done everything that he's recorded already, in his time with the Thessalonian Christians that we see recorded in Acts chapter 17 and his ministry there and in other places. So why does he even bother to answer these charges? Why not just let his already demonstrated character speak for itself? He's called the Thessalonians models back in chapter 1, so they're going to discard any slander about him, right? Well, first of all, Let me remind you of this. This is not the first time that Paul has had to defend himself against similar kinds of charges. I'm going to give you a passage, another passage in your Bible where he's had to do the same kind of thing. But as we look at passages like ours today and then the one I'm going to show you, and you consider that the Apostle Paul was criticized for his ministry, sometimes criticized for his ministry by the very people that he had ministered to. It should be instructive for us, friends. There is within the sinful human heart a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of an approach. People easily forget. If you're going to be engaged in ministry to people, be prepared at times to be hurt by the very people that you minister to. Paul had that happen to him unbelievably, the Apostle Paul, let alone lesser persons like us. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Now, when I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. He's explaining why he didn't come. 
And he's having to explain why he didn't come because he had the same kinds of detractors in Corinth that he apparently had in Thessalonica. So it's not the first time that this has happened, what we read about in Thessalonica. Or it's not the only time, I should say. And Paul apparently understood the power of suggestion, both negative and positive. While positive words tend to build up, negative words destroy. They can implant a suggestion that will color one's view of subsequent actions. Those negative words and the suggestion that they implant creates a lens through which we view what another person does. And then it becomes self-fulfilling in that it confirms itself. If you've once formed a negative impression, then any action can and usually is viewed negatively. Well, he's been gone a long time, they say of Paul. The suggestion has already been implanted, so he has been gone for a long time. Maybe they're right. You know, he did leave when trouble started, after all. You do know a tree by its fruit, so where is he? I've done this. I've done this in my own life. That is allowed a negative comment to be made about someone without insisting that the speaker or the two of us go to the individual with that particular complaint. And I did not know personally the individual about whom they spoke at the time, but I'd see that person from time to time because we trafficked in the same circles. And when I'd see that person who I did not know, I'd always think of how they treated this other person who told me these things. My view of them was negatively colored because of what I had heard and allowed to be implanted. Here's the thing. I subsequently got to know the person and found out years later that what I'd been told was completely wrong. But it affected my view of that person for years. Not only did Paul not want to leave, but he endeavored to get back as soon as possible. Again, verse 17. Brothers and sisters, we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing. We made every effort to see you. And so I say in your outline, because we love one another, yes, we experience sorrow and separation, so we desire to be together. And Paul is showing us here that we ought to strive to do that. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort. This intense internal longing was his motivation to take action. And that action meant making every effort. It means that he didn't just make a half-hearted effort so he could say he tried. In fact, verse 18 says he did so again and again. And who was it that did this again and again? Verse 18, I, Paul. As the leader of the missionary team, he was the one who was apparently the object of their charges. Remember, we've seen that it was Paul and Timothy and Silas who ministered in Thessalonica. But it's Paul in particular that they're aiming their their charges at. Again, I'll just say this and move on. That's the way it goes. You can have all sorts of people doing all sorts of things, all sorts of people involved. But the one person who's going to be the object of scorn, if people choose to do that, is going to be the person who's in charge, in this case, Paul. He says, I, Paul, sought to do this, to see you again, again and again. 
the end of verse 17, he says, my object was, my desire was to see you, literally to see your face so that he could experience the full range of emotion. It's because of these kinds of passages in the Bible that speak of the relationship that Christians are to have with one another, the desire that we're to have to be together so that as we're going to see, we can minister together. It's because of that we have songs like, blessed be the tie that binds. Some of you know the words to that. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain. But we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. But an accuser would still be unimpressed with Paul's efforts, probably saying something like, well, you know, he's saying he tried again and again, but the truth is where there's a will and he still didn't get it done. Well, that's very often true. Where there's a will, there's a way, unless circumstances beyond our control intervene. And Paul says in verse 18, sometimes we're not able. Though we desire to be together, sometimes we're not able to be together. Verse 18, we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. When he says Satan blocked our way, that word blocked is literally cut into. It's used of an impediment placed in one's path, a roadblock. So Paul says there was some impediment, some roadblock that kept me from being able to what I earnestly desired to do, and that is to to be with you. Satan blocked our, our way to return. We're not told what that impediment was, but we see other mentions of these kinds of impediments providentially from the activity of Satan. That God oversees in his sovereignty, but nonetheless, God allows Satan a leash, as it were, and room to operate. So we're not told what this impediment was, but we see others. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul speaks of his thorn in the flesh. He says it was apparently a physical malady, and he calls it a messenger of Satan. So he wants them to know that the only thing that's kept him from visiting is a circumstance beyond his control. Otherwise, he would be with him because it's his desire, his intense desire to do so. So our love for one another means we experience sorrow and separation, that we desire to be together. And I say in your outline that we seek to minister to one another, desire to be together. We experience sorrow, but we want to be together so we can minister to one another. I mean, why is it that we should long to be together and be saddened when we're apart? Paul says that our purpose is wrapped up with the well-being of one another. You see, friends, you need to understand this. We all need to understand this, that our desire to be together does not mean, you know, we're always each other's favorite person. Do you know that? Now, I just want you to think about yourself in your own ministry, such as it is in God's church. With whom do you hang out in the church? Tends to be people who are like you, doesn't it? Tends to be people who like you. People who are like you and who like you. But, you know, God calls us to come outside our comfort zone with people who are not like us. Our desire to be with one another is not just because these are all people like me. 
Rather, it's because it gives me an opportunity to engage in the common interests that we do have in the Lord Jesus. Remember, we saw back in chapter 1 that in verse 4, very early on in the letter to this church, Paul reminded them that you have been chosen, you've been elected by God. He's reminding them that you are part of the family of God, even though most of them were not of Jewish ancestry. You are as much a part of the family of God as any Jew who comes to to Christ with all of their benefits, starting in the Old Testament. But also, it's a reminder that those of us in the family of God don't choose who's going to be in the family. And so we take all comers. And we have Christ in common and a mutual desire to know one another so that we can help one another grow. And that's because, as I say in your outline, ministry is our purpose. We desire to be together. We desire to know each other so that we can minister to one another because, in fact, that's our purpose. Verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? That ministry to each is our purpose, is seen in the fact that Paul points to the end. He says, when he comes. And the Greek word that's translated when he comes is parousia. It refers to a visit of royalty. When Christ returns, we will be judged. And he says our hope, joy, and crown will be our ministry center, our building. Paul says here, our hope, our joy, our crown will be the programs that we have at CBC. Paul says here that our joy, our hope, our crown is going to be the bank account we've been able to amass as a church here. Right? He says, no, it's going to be you. It's going to be each other. And that's why our theme verse for our ministry is what Paul said elsewhere in Colossians 1. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Here's why. So that we may present everyone perfect, that is mature, in Christ. That's our crown. That's our joy. When we stand before the Lord, we are able to offer to him the service that we have rendered on his behalf in the lives of those of his people. Friends, when you think about it, every material thing that you can think of, buildings, programs, money, all of those pass away. People last forever. Investment in people is the wisest choice that you can make. And if we invest our lives in the spiritual well-being of others, then we have the confident expectation. That's what hope means in the New Testament. A confident expectation that when we stand before the Lord, it will be a joyous, victorious time. The word that's translated crown was the word used for the laurel wreath that was used to crown the victor at the end of an athletic contest. So ministry to others is our purpose because it's the basis of judgment for us in the future. But it's also our joy in the present. So I say in your outline. Ministry is our purpose and ministry is our reward. Verse 20. Indeed, you are our glory and joy. 
That's written in the present tense. And so the joy experienced from ministering ministering to others is not only going to be experienced in the future, but right now as well. So, friend, if you're content apart from serving people, then you're way too easily satisfied. Your joy and your glory ought to come as it did for Paul and his associates from serving others. But if you're content without doing that, you're much too easily satisfied. You find your joy in lesser things. And if you're discontent, let me say, it's because you're not serving people. You can find this joy and this contentment, this glory and this joy, indeed, in ministering to others. If we find our joy in serving others, then as long as there are people to serve and we have opportunity to meet their needs, then what more could we want? Doing this on behalf of our Lord. Discontent occurs when people take their eyes off ministry and begin to focus on other things. So, do you think there are areas of service at CBC for you to then be be used to minister in the lives of others? You think? I happen to know that there are and there always will be. If you're not involved in that, let me just say as kindly and directly as I can, you're disobeying God. But you can begin to obey him. You can repent of that. And you can begin to obey him. We have a connection card, the program that you received on the way in. Every week, that connection card, the part on the right, it's perforated, it tears off. There's a checkbox on there. One of the checkboxes that says... I want to learn about, I want to know more about serving at CBC. You can check that off, put your name, put your email on there, turn that in at the desk, the lobby, and then they will get that to Pastor Larry, who serves as our community service coordinator, and he'll get with you and then go from there. Christians demonstrate love for one another. And I say in your outline, they demonstrate sacrificial love for one another. We sacrifice our own desires. Demonstrate sacrificial love, first of all, sacrificing our own desires. Now, we're going to look at verse 1 in chapter 3. That may may seem curious to you because we're going from one chapter to another. But remember this, that when your New Testament was originally written, there were no chapter and verse divisions. And so what we see in chapter 3 is a continuation of the thought of chapter 2. Verse 1. Of chapter 3. So, when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ. When we could stand it no longer, when the inner anguish from the thought that the Thessalonians might be in difficulty overcame me, I decided to dispatch Timothy to you. And he says there, That we thought it best to be left by ourselves. It sounds like there's more than one person left in Athens after he sends, after he sends Timothy. But actually that we is what's called an editorial we. And ourselves is actually singular. So it was Paul who was left alone in Athens. Paul by himself. Now one commentator says this about this act of Paul sacrificially sending Timothy back to Thessalonica while he, Paul, remained alone in Athens. Paul's sending of Timothy back to this church was a profound sacrifice. 
This was not simply a wise leader making plans for Timothy to minister in Thessalonica. Paul was doing more than allowing Timothy to go back and minister to those Christians. He was communicating his love to this church in this action of sending Timothy because sending Timothy was a great sacrifice for the apostle. Paul was willing to be left alone in Athens. Athens was one of the world's oldest cities, a center for the arts, learning, and philosophy. It was the home to Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum. Perhaps the birthplace of democracy in a place that was hostile to the gospel. This city full of idolatry provoked Paul's spirit in Acts chapter 17 and verse 16. And it led to this, his confrontation with the philosophers on Mars Hill. Paul was willing to be left alone in that great pagan city of Athens in order to send Timothy back to minister to the small church in Thessalonica. He was willing to be left alone in a hostile environment. He was giving up a co-worker in the gospel. And these are the opposite sides of this sacrifice. Being alone is one thing, but losing a co-worker for the gospel is a whole nother level to this act of love. I mean, can you imagine the benefits of Paul and Timothy ministering together in Athens? Our initial reaction to situations like this is to maximize the place where we're ministering to keep our co-workers with us. Maybe part of the motive is for the gospel, but we also want to preserve our own comfort, if we're honest. But Paul made the decision to send his co-worker back to Thessalonica and for him, Paul, to minister in Athens by himself. But there was still more to this sacrifice. Paul was not just choosing to minister alone. He was not just giving up a co-worker. Did you notice how he described Timothy in verse 2 of chapter 3? He was giving up a brother. And I don't think Paul was simply using this term to describe Timothy as a brother in Christ. Paul's relationship with Timothy was deeper than that. The bond between them was more than co-workers for the gospel. Elsewhere, Paul called Timothy my true child in the faith. And this makes us realize the depth of his sacrifice. No one else qualified to go to Thessalonica because no one else had the spirit and heart of Paul more than Timothy did. If Paul could not go, He would send his closest companion, his true child in the faith, Timothy. This shows the links to which he went to inquire about their well-being. Since he couldn't go himself, he didn't leave it at that. He sent none other than Timothy. Paul resisted the temptation to succumb to the sin of possessiveness that we all wrestle with. Those of us that have children have to wrestle with this. Lord, I want my children to serve you here by me. But what if God calls them somewhere else? A long way off. Somewhere dangerous. Paul resisted that temptation for possessiveness. So we sacrifice our own desires. And I say in your outline, we sacrifice for good reason. The end of verse 2, I did this, I dispatched Timothy to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So we do this for good reason. One of those reasons is for spiritual growth, to to strengthen you. That is, to cause you to stand, to stand firm. 
and to encourage you. It's a word that means to come alongside. It pictures putting an arm around another. Now, why? Why do we do that? It's for spiritual stability. Much of the apostles, all of the apostles' ministry was concentrated on grounding new converts in their faith. A ministry as necessary today as it was in the first century. So why do we have these relationships? Why do we love one another sacrificially? Why do we give up what's precious to us for the sake of others? It's so that they can experience spiritual growth. And it's also so that they can persevere in, I say in your outline, they can persevere in trials. Verse 3 says, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. He says unsettled. That word is used of a dog wagging its tail, and it paints a picture of the Thessalonians going back and forth because of their persecutions. Paul sought to comfort them in their affliction by reminding them that difficulty and trial are the lot for the Christian. Therefore, it's not that they've necessarily done something wrong or God is doing something to them. Isn't it the case, friends, that when trouble comes, we often react by doubting that we're where God wants us to be. We often think that we've done something wrong and that God must be displeased with us. Even some mature Christians react this way, as evidenced by Paul's words of reassurance to Timothy, none other than Timothy, many years later. In his final letter in the New Testament, written to his protege Timothy, he said this, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And yet trials often come to us to make us able to stand firm rather than to blow us away. Paul said of his own hardships in ministry in 2 Corinthians 4, we're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And then finally, in verse 5, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. When Paul says that, he's underscoring the fact that he had a purposeful ministry in Thessalonica like he did every place else. Because it was possible that the purpose could be thwarted. Thus the words in vain. The phrase in vain points to the fact that there was purpose to his ministry both in the past and in the present. He didn't want his work to be useless by failing to attain the goal of seeing them saved and then established in their faith so that they could contribute profitably to the work of the gospel. And anything that arose that might hinder that progress, such as persecution or internal strife, Paul sought to rectify For the sake, not just of the people, but for the sake of Christ and of the gospel. Friends, we've seen this. We've seen that we should endeavor to minister to one another. Why is that? Because God has brought us together to do his work. Together. We're not pursuing our Christian lives as lone rangers. But in the community of faith, called to be, in fact, partners in the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says to 
the Philippian Christians, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Here's why. Because of your partnership in the gospel. The word translated partnership is a Greek word many of you know, koinonia. It's often translated fellowship. Our fellowship is not just bagels and coffee. Our fellowship is partnership together in the work of the ministry. And each of us plays a part in that. So we don't simply come and shake hands and leave. We get to know one another. We take advantage of the opportunities that are afforded in the various venues that we've created in order for us to get to know one another in ways that you can't on Sunday morning. That's what community groups are about. That's what the Bible studies that we offer are about. That's what growth partners are about. Our relationship is about more than friends, friends, and social involvement. It's a partnership in the gospel enterprise. And so we seek to strengthen one another for the fight. And having been strengthened, we do all we can to advance the cause. I pray that the good purpose which God has brought us together might be achieved in each of us individually, but as well collectively as his body. Here's your take-home truth. Christians show love for one another by sacrificially serving one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for memorializing for us in the pages of Scripture the ministry of the great apostle and his associates. We thank you, Lord, for his inspiring example of giving his life and their lives completely for the sake of the mission to which you have called us. But Lord, you know that in the American church, we prize individualism. We prize privacy. We don't want to get involved in the lives of others. We don't want others involved in our lives. Oh, Lord, we ask you to release us to, to remove the blindness and the hardness of the sin of American culture that has creeped into your church. Lord, help us to see that in your word it is replete with commands about what we're to do with one another. In order to fulfill these commands to serve one another and accept one another and forgive one another and love one another and pray for one another and all of the dozens of one another commands in your New Testament, we must know each other. We must know each other in order to love each other better. Lord, may this be a church that does that. Thereby, may we be strengthened individually and then collectively stand up, as it were, as one man for the cause of the gospel. May you be glorified then in it as that beacon goes out into Trenton and beyond and people are drawn to what we have here because you said the night before you died, by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.